that person walks into your office again and for about the fifth time has an issue they're putting on your desk that really they should be solving for themselves, but they're back partially because you are always so willing to help, aren't you? On today's episode, the way to stop rescuing people from their problems. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 284. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show gives you access to the practical wisdom that will empower you to become a better leader. I'm so glad you tuned in for this episode because I've been looking forward to this conversation for actually several months now since uh, I booked it. Uh, And it is with someone who's a returning guest to the show. And I say that because this is someone who's got a great expertise in coaching and helping us all to become more effective in the coaching work that we're doing which we're all doing in leadership and in management. And if we're not, there's an opportunity to certainly do more of it. Um, But one of the things a lot of us tend to do is we like to help people a lot. And we even sometimes like to rescue people from their problems. And I think in today's conversation, you're going to find that there's some really helpful things that we can do as far as how we approach conversations with people in order to be more effective. And I'm really glad to welcome back to the show, Michael Bungay-Stanier. He is the best-selling author of the books, Do Great Work and The Coaching Habits, Say Less, Ask More, and Change the Way You Lead Forever. Michael and his team of facilitators help time-crunched managers coach in 10 minutes or less. His clients come from all sectors and include Box, the United Nations, Gartner, the University Health Network, and USAA. Michael is a sought-after speaker and regularly speaks to businesses and organizations and has delivered keynotes at Leadership HR, learning and development, and all kinds of conferences all around the world. Uh, Michael left Australia 25 years ago to be a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford University, where he claims the only significant achievement was falling in love with a Canadian, which is why he now lives in Toronto. Right, Michael? That's it. It That was the thing. The other great thing about being a Rhodes Scholar was it pulled me off the track of becoming a lawyer. I did a law degree in Australia. I remember that, it wasn't, yeah. It wasn't going well. You know, I, I left being sued by one of my law lecturers <laughs> for defamation, which is probably a career clue about what you shouldn't be doing. And honestly, for the sake of the legal profession, you know, I, I would have been just a terrible lawyer. So that that becoming a Rhodes Scholar saved me from that as well. You know, you've done okay for yourself in Canada. You became Canadian Coach of the Year. So something must have worked out, right? Yeah, something must have gone right there. I would, uh, just to say, I would never be Canadian Lawyer of the Year. That badge would not be pinned on my breast. <laughs> well, speaking of uh, speaking of coaching, I think one of the things that people who like doing coaching, not only professional coaches, but more importantly, those of us who are leaders in organizations and hear a lot about being needing to be better coaches and often want to be better coaches. Yeah. One of the things that drives us is we want to really be helpful to people. And um, and I think that's something that even drives a lot of professional coaches too. And yet, that is sometimes the very thing that can be a liability for us and for our organization. I was wondering if you could say more about that because you go into some detail of that in the book. It's a big, big topic. And I think of it as the difference between being helpful and being, and I'm doing air quotes now, helpful. 
Um, and a lot of our patterns of behavior come from a good place, which is like I'm trying to be of assistance, but actually don't actually serve that purpose as well as they might. And if you've ever felt, the folks listening, if you ever felt that you're overwhelmed by the amount of work you're trying to do, or your team has become overly dependent on who you are, or you become a bottleneck to the people that you're trying to lead, or for some reason people don't seem to take the awesome advice you keep dishing out to them. Uh, if any of that resonates with you, well, you can possibly trace that back to your desire but ineffective way of being helpful. And that's what I think Dave and I are going to dig into over this uh, conversation. In the Coaching Habit book, we call it the the drama triangle. We talk about the the, the Cartman drama triangle. And Dave, in, in our programs where we teach busy managers to coach in 10 minutes or less, we actually start with the, the drama triangle because it's the thing that gives people the aha about, you know what, I should change the way I'm behaving, the way I'm acting, what I'm doing, because it just isn't working nearly as well as I thought it might be. Well, that's great that you mentioned that because I want to get into the details of what the drama triangle is. Um, And I think it'll be helpful for me to set the stage for our audience here too on our previous conversation. Uh, Michael was back on the show on episode 237, and I had just heard about the Coaching Habit book when you and I first talked last year, Michael. And as I got into it, and after that conversation, I got into the book even more. And I said during that interview, I was going to take the seven questions from the Coaching Habit book and put it on my monitor and and use it all the time when I was in conversations. And I have over the last year. Um, It's not unusual for me to pull that up two or three times a week. And those have been the guideposts for me in many, if not most of the coaching interactions I've had over the last year. Um, This is the book, The Coaching Habit. And by the way, our conversation today is going to center around this too, that for me is the book that I always wanted on coaching. Uh, Because most coaching books are written for professional coaches. This This is a book that you've written for leaders, and it's such an accessible book. It's the how to have a conversation and how to coach. Um, I, I'm, I love it. <laughs> and so, yeah, um, you know, in some ways, the way we talk about it is like we're not actually trying to turn people into coaches, but we do want managers and leaders and just normal people to be more coach like. Yeah, which exactly. Effectively, is like, how do you stay curious just that little bit longer? And how do you rush to action giving and adv- action taking and advice giving just a little bit slower? That's the, the simple but difficult change of behavior we're looking for. And the drama triangle is a really great way of seeing a lens to see why you might be easily triggered into rushing into action, rushing into advice. So set this up for us of what is the drama triangle and why is it something we need to be aware of from a leadership standpoint? Yeah, fantastic. So give me like three or five, three to five minutes to set this up. So it's a bit of a Michael monologue here, but I want to set a bit of background and then explain how it all works. So forgive us if 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 I rant a bit, but... So the origin for this is actually in a slightly dated therapeutic model called transactional analysis or or TA. And what that gives us, if you haven't even heard of it, you might have heard some of the language associated with it because what comes with is like adult to adult relationships and parent child relationships. It, It kind of explains the dynamic of how we interact with each other as human beings. And it's quite interesting. It's a bit theoretical certainly doesn't work in organizational life because nobody wants to be told they have a parent-child relationship with their boss. That doesn't work. Right. But one of the guys who studied with the founder of TA is a guy called Dr. Stephen Karpman. 
And he came up with a simplified way of understanding uh, that basic interaction. And this is what he says. He says, look, when things get dysfunctional, and of course, they, they always get dysfunctional, but when things get dysfunctional, three basic roles play out. There's the victim, the persecutor, and the rescuer. And you can imagine those three roles kind of arranged like a triangle, the victim, the persecutor, and the rescuer. Now, here's the thing. If you ask people what those three roles look like and sound like, people have no problems guessing. Um, but what's interesting to talk about is not just what that behavior is, but also what, what, what are the benefits of playing that role and what are the disadvantages of playing that role? So I'm going to put you on the spot here, and we'll do this quickly, Dave, but you know, thinking about the victim role, what do you think somebody playing the victim looks like or sounds like, Dave? Oh, the organization never provides the support for me that I need. Um, I never yeah. get the budget I want. Um, yeah, you've got, you got this great little whiny thing going on there, which is perfect. Like, yeah. you know, it's so hard, it's not fair, poor me, all of that exactly. Now, what do you imagine are the advantages to playing that role? Because there are definitely advantages. Oh, you don't have to take responsibility for yeah. anything that happens that's negative in the organization or results or business numbers or anything like that. Yeah, perfect. So no responsibility. Anything else that's a benefit to playing the victim role? It's a lot easier than trying to solve the problem. <laughs> yeah, maybe. You, get to, you get to kind of opt out. Yeah. One, of the other, one of the other advantages is that you get a whole lot of people trying to save you, to help you, to fix you. Yeah. Um, so yeah. you've got people rushing going, oh, poor you, poor thing. It's so hard, isn't it? But Dave, what do you think the price you pay for playing the victim role is? What's the cost of it? Well, I'm just thinking back to organizations I've worked with where I think everyone has one or more of these people in the organization is um, people tend to try to do a lot to have to manage around you and um, people don't bring you into conversations. People don't give you opportunities to lead and influence because they just don't want to deal with it a lot of the time. Yeah, all of that is exactly right. And the other price you pay is you actually feel stuck. You feel powerless. I mean, the thing about having no power is no responsibility, but also you have no power. You think this is the way the world is. I'm stuck here. I can't do anything about it. So it's kind of a miserable place to be sitting because it feels like you can do nothing to change anything. So you, that's the victim role. So you get that. Everybody gets that. Let's talk about the second role, the persecutor role. What do you think that somebody playing the persecutor role looks like or sounds like? Oh, no one knows this as well as I do. Uh, no one can get their act together. Uh, I better handle this myself because exactly. I know it. I know it better than anyone else. That that kind of a yeah. that kind of approach. Exactly, the finger waggler, the shouter, the bully, more subtly the micromanager. All of these are great versions of the persecutor role. So, what what would you say the advantages are of playing that role? Because there are definitely advantages. Yeah, you get to stay in control. Lots of power. Um, nice. You, yeah, yeah, you, you're you're the person taking care of stuff. Yeah, you feel in control. You feel power. You feel superior to other people. You get to do that shouty thing, so you kind of do that and feel the righteous indignation of anger, all of that sort of stuff. But playing that role comes with a price and quite a significant price. What do you think the cost is for doing this? Probably, probably create a lot of fear in the organization. Um, yeah. You probably create victims who might not otherwise have been victims. Exactly. Um, yeah. You know, you get a lot of compliance, but you don't get enthusiastic engagement with people. Brilliant. Yeah, it's spot on. So you got all of that. The other thing is it's it's a it's an it's an overwhelming place because you don't trust anybody. You kind of need to check everybody's work. You need to take it all on. And of course, it's very lonely as well. There's nobody who's going to want to hang out with you. 
no, you're not the friend. Nobody's going to go the extra yards for you. So all of that. So victim and persecutor, they, they, they sound like not very great roles. The third role, rescuer, sounds slightly better than the other two. But make no mistake, it's equally as dysfunctional, equally screwed up as the other roles. Um, so what do you think the rescuer looks like or sounds like, Dave? I think of this a lot, especially with new managers when they're trying to delegate something and someone comes back to them and they say, oh, you know, I'm having trouble with this. Well, I'll, I'll take that back. I'll take it on. Uh, let me solve That's that problem for you, especially if they'd been in the role previously. It's it's very easy for them to buy lots of things back and and not right. give people the chance to really learn or do their jobs. Yeah, it's like, give it to me. I'll take it on. Don't fight. It's okay. I'll sort it out. Now, there are advantages to doing that. There's advantages to playing this role. What would you say, what would you guess the advantages might be? I think uh, when I've done this for me, I mean, there's a, there's a sense here of control too. Of, of yeah, oh, you it's know, a great insight. It's I, a subtle insight, but for sure, it's, this is yeah. a controlling role, yeah? Yeah, of like, okay, I can probably do this better than this person. You know, I have more experience doing this. Um, and I think there's a sense of, dare I say, superiority even a little bit sometimes when this yeah. happens of like, okay, you know, I can, I can, I can solve your problems. <laughs> nice, yeah, friendly exactly. employee, like uh, you, you need me to do this for you kind of thing. Yeah. And, and honestly, there's also a degree of kind of almost like suffering martyr coming in here. Oh, nobody understands that it's only me keeping this entire organization together by the how hard I work and I'm so underappreciated, all of that coming with it. There's a there's a price you pay for playing the rescuer role. So what can you imagine the price is? Uh, for me and for a lot of people I've coached over the years, it's it's just getting overwhelmed and taking on way too many things. And so there's sure. there's that dynamic, but then there's also the dynamic of you don't really you don't really give people the tools or the opportunity and the development to uh, solve problems on their own and to really help them to develop skills if you're always rescuing them and getting them out of tough situations. Yeah. So what's brilliant about that insight is not only you seeing the personal price, I'm overwhelmed, I'm exhausted, I'm frustrated, but you realize that rescuers create victims, rescuers create persecutors. So Dave, you've done a brilliant job at kind of bringing forth what the three roles look like and sound like and the pros and cons of playing them. And the truth is we all have a, a role that is our default role, the role we play most often, but we actually play all three of these roles all the time. Even in a single conversation, you can be bouncing around the drama triangle. You know, you come in, your, your, your direct report's giving you something and it's disappointing. So you're like, come on, Dave, what is this? I've told you about doing this report and you've done this and I'm, this is not, I can't blah, 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 blah. And of course, the direct report goes, oh, it's so hard. My computer broke down and I didn't really understand the brief and R&D wouldn't give me the details and sales hate me because they hate me. And then, of course, you jump into rescue a role going, well, look, just give me the report. I'll, I'll take it. I'll do it. I'll rewrite the report for you. It's like and then the other person jumps into the persecutor role going, hey, this is you terrible leader. You don't trust me. You can't let me do a second draft. You're always controlling everything. And then you move into victim mode. It's so hard. I'm just trying to be a good leader and be helpful. Nobody appreciate. And you can see how in that single conversation, you're, you're, you're kind of playing all of the roles all of the time. Yeah, yeah. I could see how that had happened. And we do have that default role. And here's what happens. And I'm going to bet this is true of almost everybody listening in. The way we teach this is we lay the roles out on the floor. We don't have tables in our training courses. And so people are standing around the drama triangle. They're really getting into it. And then I say, okay, let's make this real. 
Go stand by the role that you think you play most often. And everyone stands by rescuer, right? Exactly. 90 <laughs> to 95% of people surge towards the rescuer role. Most of the rest go to persecutor. And then there are a few very brave, insightful people who would self-nominate uh, uh, victim as the role that they go. And, of course, when everyone looks around, everybody laughs. <laughs> and then there's a certain amount of finger pointing. Dave, there's no way you're a rescuer. You're definitely a persecutor or something like that. And then you go, so how is this going for you? And they go, it, is, it sucks. <laughs> it is terrible. <laughs> you know, this, is, this is not a great experience for me. I'm, I am exhausted. I am frustrated. I am tired. I feel like I'm bleeding. And it's not really making a difference. And here's why this becomes interesting and important for anybody here who's going, is there something here in terms of how I become a leader? You know, as you said in the intro, leaders aren't born, they're made. This is one of the insights that helps make you into a leader where you go, would it be useful if I could show you how to get out of the drama triangle? And everybody goes, yes, please. Because when you're in the drama triangle, you kind of get triggered there. It's a reactive mode. You don't really think about it. And then somehow a version of yourself that's not the best version of yourself shows up. And what we all want as leaders, as managers, is to show up in a way that's more mindful, is the best version of ourselves, which means you choose how to behave. You don't just react to whatever's going on around you. And what's interesting is that when you actually get into it and you go, so how do we get out of the drama triangle? What starts showing up is coach-like behavior. Mm. asking questions, being curious, not rushing into fixing it and solving it and action. And that's a really, what I find that in here is a really powerful insight because there's one thing to, you know, hear the previous episode we did and talking about the coaching questions <clears throat> or just in general going, yeah, yeah, okay, coaching, I should, I know I should do that more often. But it's actually pretty hard to change your behavior and actually do things differently. But what you get in understanding the drama triangle and I bet everybody's listening here. It's like, think of that person that winds you up on your team at the moment. It might be your boss. It might be a peer. It might be a direct report. And now frame that through the drama triangle. What role they play, what role you play. Now, wouldn't it be great if we could find a way to get out of that dynamic? Now, there's real kind of what's in it for me around why to be more coach-like. Does that, does that all make sense, Dave? Yeah, it totally makes sense. And I, I think one of the interesting things for me is just how you frame this in the model of part of the way we work against falling into the drama triangle for ourselves is actually the word lazy. <laughs> and so yes. I'm wondering if you could say something about that, of how that, because the assumption is a lot of times that we need to, if we're going to be leading well, if we're going to be coaching well, we need to be doing a lot of work. We need to be doing right. the quote unquote right. rescuer work, right? And yeah. so actually it turns out not so much. So, so um, much. Say, say more about yeah. that. So our three principles are be lazy, be curious, be often. That's the three principles to be more coach-like. Be curious, people understand. You know, it's to basically say, look, and we talked about this in the last episode, you are an advice-giving maniac. <laughs> I mean, you don't even know how much you like to give advice, but just slow down that. And being often is to say that every interaction with somebody can be a bit more coach-like, you know, have a little more curiosity thrown in rather than just telling them what to do. But be lazy. Um, and, you know, honestly, Dave, that's deliberately provocative. We want people to raise their eyebrows and go, huh, you know, you obviously don't understand me. I've worked really hard to become this leader, become this person. And, and I know that's true. 
but we're trying to slow down the rush to not useful work. And when you look at how rescuers show up, trust me, rescuers are working really, really hard, just not in a useful way. Persecutors, they're actually working really, really hard, just not in a useful way. And being lazy is really code for saying, how do you stop jumping in and trying to be helpful, in inverted commas, rather than actually helpful? And Dave, maybe what's useful is to actually look at these three roles and go, so how do we get out of these roles if you find yourself stuck in the roles? Yeah, that'd be great. Because I think um, one of the things I'm sure people are thinking is like, okay, so I, I get those three roles. I maybe see where I would show up normally. And, and like you said, I think probably a lot for a lot of us, that is the rescue role. But then there's the, okay, well, what do I actually do to get out of that? So I think that'll help us to get a sense of what would be a first step we could we could take that reset some of that dynamic. That's perfect. And, and what I know people are noticing is how I'm role modeling being lazy on this very podcast by getting you to do all the work. I noticed that. You're nominally interviewing me, but I'm actually cunningly getting you to do the work. So I'm just role modeling what laziness looks like. So I'm going to put you on the spot again. So Dave, yeah, let's talk about the victim role first. When you find yourself triggered into the victim role, you know, you're feeling powerless, you're feeling pointless, you're feeling hopeless, you're feeling stuck. What comes to mind for you around ways that you could get yourself out of the victim role? Um, I know you'll have some thoughts and then I'll jump in with some additional thoughts. Yeah, I think for me, uh, it's helpful when I can think of what's getting pers- outside perspective, first of all, and getting uh, getting away from the energy that's put me in that space. Um, and then the other thing I think is taking a first or second step, uh, you know, minimum breakaway something that will get me beyond that place that I'm at. Um, those yeah. are the two things that tend to work well for me. Perfect. And they're, they're great tactics. In fact, they're good tactics for all three of the roles. The first is to kind of figure out the way I would frame the first point you made was to figure out what's really going on. And in fact, to ask yourself, what's truth and what's made up? What's data and what's judgment? Because so often our brains get clouded by a very small amount of data and a huge amount of judgment about what it all means. And actually separating out data from judgment can be really powerful to go, okay, here's what's actually going on. And here's what I'm now making up about the situation. Also, just physically getting out of that situation, removing yourself from a dynamic can be a really powerful way of getting out of the the drama triangle. And a really kind of in the moment practical way of doing that is actually just to remember to keep breathing, take a breath. Because when you're pushed into the drama triangle, what you tend to do is your, your shoulders go up, you move into fight or flight mode, you're, you're hunched slightly, you're kind of poised, ready to fight or flight. You stop, you hold your breath, you stop breathing, oxygen starts draining from your prefrontal cortex, your smart part of your conscious part of your brain. You start thinking less clearly, all becomes a bit more animalistic. And taking a breath refloods the brain with oxygen, brings back your more subtle thinking capacities online, and allows you to deal with it differently. So those are all great ways. Here's what I'd add. One of the key things about being in victim mode is you feel stuck. And stuck is really when you go, you know, I really don't like what's happening here, but I can't think of any alternative or any other way of doing it. So I have to live with it, but I I really don't like it, but I have to like it. That's what stuck feels like. And one of the best coaching questions, in fact, you know, this is coaching question number two from the book, best coaching question in the world. And Dave, I think you'll probably remember what it is. The second one is the R question, right? 
Exactly, you got it. And what else? And what else? Yeah. So what's powerful about and what else is you use it as a way of generating new ideas, new options, new possibilities for yourself. So that when you're faced in a situation where you feel stuck, asking yourself, what could I do? What ideas do I have? And what else? And what else? And what else? Will generate options. And by having options, it's much harder to stay stuck in that particular place. So that's that's some tactics around getting out of the victim role. Let's talk about the persecutor role next. They, and I'm put, I know I'm putting you on the spot here, I, and I'm, that doesn't stop me actually doing it. I'm still going to do it. Uh, <laughs> I've thrown out the interview plan I had, by the way. Exactly, it's a disaster. We've gone off. The, it's, it's, we've gone off it's long, here. long since destroyed. <laughs> <laughs> the, the persecutor role, you find yourself in persecutor role, you know, that kind of anger, shouty, reactive, don't trust people, give it to me, I'll sort this out, you people are useless. What are some things that come to mind for you around how might you get out of it when you're playing that role? Because, and this is the, a key ins- insight, thinking about the drama triangle is in essence a self-management tool it's not really about trying to change other people's behavior because that's always hard and and unpredictable it's really about changing your own reaction changing your own behavior so what do you think dave if you're you're in persecutor mode what comes to mind as a way of trying to shift out of that role yeah, that's where Dale Carnegie's work's been really helpful to me over the years. Um, I'll often think back to a principle from how to st- how to win friends and influence people, and uh, the principle I'll often zero in on is try honestly to see things from the other person's point of view. And yeah. um, and so when I catch myself in an interaction or in the moment of thinking like, okay, I'm really frustrated with this, or I just feel like I need to step in or take control of this. I really do try to consciously think like, okay, where's the other party coming from? Why are they doing the nice. things they're doing? And and more often than not, if I really will stop and just think about that, the answer is pretty obvious on they're doing exactly what I would do if I were in that situation, <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's very that's very generous. And I love it. I love that. It's a, a really powerful way, which is can you stand in their shoes? Um, you know, that as an aside, you know, that joke about you should somebody's irritating you, you should walk a mile in their shoes because then you'll be a mile away from them and you'll have their shoes. <laughs> right. <laughs> but exactly. the, the, other, the other couple of things that I'd add to that, one builds on what you're saying, which is to assume positive intent. You know, one of the things that get, happens when you're trapped in the drama triangle is you assume they're out to get you. And going, look, I'm assuming that they're on my side. I'm assuming they're doing their best. I'm assuming they're trying hard. How does that shift the way you're reacting and responding to the situation. But the question, the coaching question, I think is most powerful here and really in some ways lies at the very heart of untangling the drama triangle is the the foundational question, number four in the book. And that question is, what do you want? And what is useful is not to just ask the other person, what do you want? But it's actually to ask yourself, okay, I'm in the, I'm in the persecutor role. What exactly do I want here? Because nice. persecutors often think that they've communicated very, very clearly to everybody exactly what they want. And often enough, people are going, I have no idea what's going on here. So asking yourself, what do I want? Asking the other person, what do they want? Is a nice way of kind of grounding the conversation and beginning to rebuild it when you're outside the drama triangle. Does that does that make sense? Yeah, it totally makes sense. And that is... 
some of the studies I've seen, um, I think John Cotter had a famous study where looking at when leaders communicate a vision to the organization of what they mm-hmm. want to see happen with change. I think the the statistic is, I can't remember if it's eight times or 10 times that leaders under communicate that vision. And right. so it's the, the, people don't even get started from the starting gate because it's not that people aren't buying into the vision. They don't even know what it is because they haven't heard, heard it enough times or enough different ways where they even are present to what it is. Yeah. You know, they're saying the problem with communication is the illusion that's taken place. Yeah. That, yeah. Uh, you know, and we're all like, I'm pretty sure I told you. Everybody else says, I'm pretty sure you've never told us anything. So that leaves us the third and final role, which like, honestly, most of your readers are like, your listeners are going, oh, tell me, tell me how to get out of the rescuer role. Cause I really resonate with that. Um, so Dave, what comes to mind for you? If you're thinking of, you find yourself in the rescuer role that I'm going to jump in, fix it, solve it, give it to me, let me take it on. How might you self-manage so that you're not suckered into that role? Yeah. Before I read your book, probably the question I would have asked is what would you like me to do or what steps would you like me to take? Um, and I, I love the question you have here too, but it's, it's, if I can get myself out of the put it on my desk or let me take care of it. Yeah, Not always, but a lot of the times I find that when I've asked a question like that, then it's then it's like, okay, let's have a conversation about what I can do to help maybe, but what also you're going to be doing to help resolve the situation. Yeah. And, you know, you remember when I talked about transactional analysis and language like adult-to-adult relationship, it's fair to ask, what do we even mean by an adult-to-adult relationship? And one of the definitions I've heard that I think is succinct and powerful is it is being able to ask for what you want, knowing that the answer may be no. Mm. And I think when you find yourself in rescuer mode, part of what you're trying to do is just slow down the rush to jump in. This is that laziness coming through again. And the question that I would encourage people to ask is actually called the lazy question in the book, but it will sound a bit counterintuitive to folks because the question is, how can I help Or more bluntly, what do you want from me? So this is how it works. Somebody comes into your office or your cubicle or pings you an email. And every little bit of your rescueriness is twitching. And you're like, oh, I'm desperate to jump in and fix this. But rather than doing that, you ask them, so, okay, I understand everything that's going on. How can I help? Or what do you want from me here? And what that does is it forces them to make a clear request. And that's useful because almost always they haven't really made a clear request. And you as the rescuer or in rescuer mode go, I'm pretty sure I know what they want. And I'm about to start the intervention, whether they want it or not. You know, it's just, it starts to happen. And what you're doing is you're slowing down your rush to jump in and fix things. And you're also just slowing down their cascade of information and making them articulate what's at the heart of it, which is why are we even having this conversation? So I think that can be really powerful. And I guess I'd add one more tactic that's useful across all three of the different roles that you're trying to stay out of, which is the insight that the body leads the brain. You know, if you want to behave differently, you need to physically be different. And it's useful for everybody to go, okay, so what does it feel like? What does it look like? What position am I in when I'm in rescuer mode? You know, what am I doing? What about persecutor mode? What does that look like? And being able to notice that and shifting things, you know, stand upright, put your shoulders down, 
you know, shake your hands out to release it a bit, breathe from the belly, breathe deeply two or three times. That shift in physical stance is a great way of getting out of the drama triangle, whether you're playing the persecutor, the rescuer, or the victim. I love the simplicity of the question, how can I help, or... Um, the more blunt version, which is, uh, w- what do you need? That was it. That, yeah. that way you articulated it. Um, yeah. What What do you want from me? What do you want from me? Yeah. Which they're like honestly, they're like, I don't need anything from you. I'm just here to bitch and moan for thirty seconds. And you're like, oh, that's awesome. Uh, you're done. Get out of my office. I've got other <laughs> stuff to do. As <laughs> right. opposed to the complicated thing that you're about to do, that would take up twenty minutes of your time, or forty minutes of your time, or a day of your time. And it allows you to do your work and your great work and the stuff you're here to to deliver rather than trying to do everybody else's job for them. Well, and I think the the other benefit that that is I'm thinking through that in times that I've used that language is when someone does come back in the situations with a clearer request, it's a lot easier than for me to determine, is this something that I should be doing, that I want to do, that's going to be helpful to this person in the organization, or is this something that I should be encouraging them to take the next step on, or is maybe there's someone else who's not even a part of this conversation that's the right person to involve? And here's what's super helpful about that insight, is the is that when, when you ask, so what do you want from me, and they tell you, you don't have to say yes. <laughs> you get to say Mm, I can't do that. Sorry, no. Or, mm, yeah, I can do that. Or, I can't do that, but I could do this instead. Or, you know, make a counter offer. Those are all legitimate responses. So, what people who are practiced at rescuers are fearful of is if I say, well, how can I help? I'm going to get this long list of things I have to do, and this is going to add to my burden. And in fact, what it's going to do is just make the choice in front of you more explicit and allows you to go, do I want to make that choice or not? So a key lesson here is there absolutely are times that we should all be saying no to those requests or and or probably offering alternatives, you know, at times that we're going to really be a lot more helpful to that person and ultimately be long better for the organization too. Uh, I'll be blunter than that. I don't believe there's a single powerful leader out there who hasn't mastered in some way the art of saying no. It's just it's just an essential leadership skill. I, I I, you, so I'd like to build a podcast around how to say no, a thousand ways to say no, because it, we are so wired to a- accede, to say yes, to want to please. Our organizations are built on the assumption that we keep saying yes. Um, but in fact, you know, we all know at the same time that, you know, great strategy. This is Peter Drucker, right? What is a strategy but you saying no to the stuff you kind of want to say yes to? You know, that is how you live a better life, how you have more impact, how you do great work, all the stuff that you and I bang on about. It, it boils down to that powerful question. It's like, what am I going to say no to so that my yeses mean something? Have you seen that Derek Seavers article on uh, hell yes versus no, uh, that yeah. philosophy? I, I, I love I, that. I, yeah, I love that too. Um, and for those who haven't seen it, it's uh, it, I'll put a link to it in the notes. Uh, it's basically the philosophy of like when someone comes to you with a, with a request, if it's not an immediate hell yes, then it's an automatic no. Because you should only be saying yes to things, and particularly I think this is true for leaders, 
that really are the things you're passionate about, the things that are aligned with the organization strategy, the things that are uniquely suited for you to be doing in the world. And if it doesn't line up with that well, then it's a no. Now, I know there's an art to that, of course, and politics and organizations and talking to mm-hmm. bosses. So there's there's obviously a, an art to managing that well. But I think that that philosophy, I use it all the time thinking about the show and planning and um, guest yeah. requests, Michael, of thinking like uh, more often, if it's not an immediate yes, I, I just it's an automatic no these days. And that's really served me so much better than it did before I did that. Yeah. I mean, it's tricky. Uh, You know, you and I as independent business people, we have a little more freedom perhaps than, than people who work in a bigger organization. But as you say, that principle is a really powerful one to carry. And we all just need to get diplomatic about saying no, but it doesn't mean you can't say no. And you know, one of the tactics I learned, um, was the art of saying no is actually learning how to say yes more slowly. You know, so rather than default to the quick yes, you you get curious. It's like, hey, why are you asking me? And have you asked Dave because he's awesome at this stuff? And if I could only do part of this, what part would you like me to do? And when you say urgent, what what do you mean by urgent exactly? And if I do this, would be there something else I'd stop doing so I could give this full priority? And when you ask questions like that, well, you get you get a range of different responses. You know, one response is you get is just somebody going, "Would you stop with the annoying questions and just do the thing I'm telling you to do?" And you know, that's often politic to to do that. But also, you like you have people who go, "I don't have the answers, but let me get back to you," and that at least buys you some time. Sometimes you have people who actually have the answers to your questions, which means that this is a thoughtful, useful brief. Um, but often enough, people will just go. Wow, you're you're more work than I thought you'd be. I'll go and find somebody else who just says yes more quickly than you do. And that's awesome. So one of the pages in this chapter in the book has in probably like 200 point font <laughs> the statement that says when someone asks you what do you think I should do about whatever, uh that's yeah. the cheddar on the mouse trap. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> I love that. Cuz it it triggers everything in, about you going, "Oh, oh, this is awesome. I'm about to add value here. I'm about to show how smart I am. I'm about to be the big person in the room. This is fantastic. I'm earning my I'm earning my pay right here, right now. And of course, there are times when somebody says, hey, how do I, or what should I, or what do you think about, where the appropriate thing to do is to give them the answer. But not always, and less than you might think. And so, What I would recommend is a habit. You know, the book is called The Coaching Habit. The first chapter is all about how do you build a habit. And it's often what a habit is, is is defining when this happens, I'm defining the way I'm going to react to it in a particular way. So here's the habit I built around that particularly tempting thing where they're going, ooh, Michael, how would you, or what would you, or what do you think about I would, I say this, I go, Dave, that's a great question. I've got some thoughts, which I'm definitely going to share with you. But before I share my thoughts, I'm curious, what are you, what's your first idea in terms of how to deal with this? And then, of course, I ask the best coaching question in the world, which is, and what else? I go, good, and what else could you do? Love it. And what else could you do? Oh, fantastic. You know, that makes me think of, and then I'll get into a, a, a process of sharing that. But the thing is, you know, particularly for those of us who lead or who are, who are a team, who are bosses or senior we all know what happens when the boss gives their idea. You know, she says, this is what I think you should do. And everybody goes, 
That's a lovely idea. I really like it. I'm writing it down and we're going to do it because that's the best idea. I, I was going to say that perhaps, but you said it so much better than I could possibly say it. You know, it sucks the oxygen out of the room. Your job as a leader is to think of yourself as a teacher and a facilitator. It's not the only things, but they're such a big part of your role. You know, Dave, I was with, um, this is about a moment of shameless name dropping. I was with uh, Alan Mulally about a month and a half ago. Um, there's Marshall Goldsmith, who's an executive coach that people may have heard of. He's running this piece at the moment called something like Marshall's 100 Coaches, and he's picking 100 coaches, and he's going to pass on all he knows to them as a way of legacy and giving back, which is a wonderful thing to do. And I happened to be lucky enough to be in the first 25 that was selected. And what we did on our weekend retreat, we had half a day with Alan Mulally, who's the ex-CEO of Ford. Big deal. You know, he was brought in first Ford outsider, not part of the Ford family that to run the company. Ford was losing $17 billion that year. I mean, can you imagine? Yeah. Uh, I can't even imagine what that amount of cash looks like. But anyway, he talked about his leadership style and it was so clear that it was entirely facilitative. And he, he, he said explicitly, I will know the answer sometimes, but my job is not to give the answer. My job is to allow the answer to come forth from the group or from the individual. And you knowing the answer allows you to be a safety net for sure. But your job is really to increase the capacity of those around you. And you do that through facilitation and teaching, not by being the guy or the gal with the answer. That's awesome. And congrats, by the way, on the Goldsmith recognition. I saw that Judith Glazer has been on the show, was on that list too yeah. recently. And it's it's really exciting to see him doing that. And it, it's fun. I mean, I think one of the things that we're all learning as, as leaders and coaches is that we're all continuing learning and learning from each other. And yeah. and to that point, the, the book's the Coaching Habit's been out a year now. What have yep. you learned in the last year in being in conversation with people around the world who have utilized the book and utilized these questions that you didn't know or didn't realize a year ago when it came out? Well, there's, there's just part of it where, you know, you write a book, you go, I hope somebody reads this because <laughs> writing a book is a miserable experience. You know, you're like, you write draft after draft after draft. They seem to be getting worse rather than better. As soon as they start getting better, you start to hate yourself and hate the topic. So and and then, you know, most books don't sell very many. Most books aren't read by many people. So it can be a fruitless, <laughs> meaningless, empty gesture into the void to write a book. So there's a certain part a year ago where I'm like, okay, well, I hope, I hope a few people pick this up and read it. I think it's good, but I don't know. But what's been most validating, I think, is how many ordinary people have gone, this feels just something that's practical and useful and something that I can use right away. I guess what's been lovely is the people who are coaches have gone, this has been a great way of simplifying and strengthening the way I show up as a coach. But I really wrote it just as you said in the introduction, which is like, it's kind of like had to be coach-like for the rest of us. And how many normal people are just going, oh, I love this book and I'm using it and it's actually already transformed the way I interact with people. That's been the kind of the most heartwarming thing. Well, that's been my experience too. Most of my coaching books are on the shelf and don't get pulled down very much, but I've had this book down a ton. And if if you're listening and you've heard that you need to be a better coach or you've wanted to improve your coaching skills, your organization is talking about bringing more coaching to leadership, 
the coaching habit is absolutely your book. You've got to get it and learn the seven questions and maybe do what I did, which is pull out the page where all seven questions are on there <laughs> right. and paste it up somewhere uh, because it's just so accessible. And like you say so much in the book, I mean, it's the, the questions are simple, but they're powerful. And if you're willing right. to discipline yourself to not jump in and rescue or persecute like we've been talking about today, uh, you'll see some amazing things come out of that. And that's absolutely been my experience over the last year. So thank you so much for the gift of doing this uh, yeah. for us, uh, Michael. And uh, and thanks so much for your time. I'm uh, really grateful uh, for uh, you coming back on the show and uh, being willing to dive in even more here for our audience and uh, helping us all be better coaches. Uh, you know, it's been super fun. And thanks for, as ever, leading such a great and interesting conversation. Thanks, Dave. Michael Bungay-Stanier is the author of The Coaching Habits, Say Less, Ask More, and Change the Way You Lead Forever. Pick it up. Thanks, Michael. Two immediate calls to action for you coming out of this conversation today. First of all, if you found this conversation helpful and Michael's thoughts valuable as in how you're thinking about how you may approach some of these situations in the future, I absolutely would recommend his book, The Coaching Habit. It has been a go-to book for me for the last year. It probably is the number one book over the last year I've seen that I continually come back to on pretty much a weekly basis, sometimes daily when I'm going into conversations with clients. It's a framework I often use and find myself asking many of the questions. And it's the book I always wanted when organizations or we had initiatives in the past at various organizations I worked with that said, you know, we need to be better coaches as leaders. And yet, no one ever articulated very well, at least not that I can remember. Well, how do I actually do it? <laughs> what do I ask? Where do I start? The book is so good at doing that, and it's really accessible. So I certainly recommend it. Thanks, Michael, for just producing a great book that's uh, been valuable to so many people. And then my second call to action, which also relates directly to this conversation, is to activate your free Coaching for Leaders membership on the coachingforleaders.com website. That's because you'll get access right away to my 10-day audio course titled 10 Ways to Empower the People You Lead. And if you will give me 10 minutes a day for 10 days, each of those lessons will give you the most immediate practical actions to become a better leader. And one of those lessons is a portion of the conversation Michael and I had a year ago when we first talked about the coaching habit back on episode 237. And we go into depth on one of those coaching questions you can utilize well. So you can get access to all that at coachingforleaders.com plus all of the podcast library, all the resources, all of my personal articles that are up there and of course, access to the weekly leadership guide that comes on Wednesday with all of the show notes and uh, all of the resources I found during the week that I think will be helpful to you. So again, all of that you can get to from the free Coaching for Leaders membership at coachingforleaders.com. Just go to the main website there. You will find it right on the main page. Now, a few related episodes to today's conversation. One of the related episodes goes all the way back almost to the beginning of this show six years ago. It's episode number two how to start coaching someone. I had my very first guest ever on that episode, Matt Ross. Matt and I had a conversation about how do you start the coaching process and using a model called From. Some of you have been listening to the uh, to the show for a long time. Uh, we'll remember that. It's a four-step model on just how to get to know someone. That, of course, is often the first step if you're going to have the privilege and earn the right 
to be able to coach someone is to meet them where they are. And episode two will really help you to meet someone where they are and get to know them in a very simple four-step model. And Matt and I demonstrate that on that episode. Also, a value to you would be episode number 190, How to Improve Your Coaching Skills. One of my favorite conversations I've had on the show in the last six years uh, was with Tom Henschel. And we talked about coaching and some of the tools that you can use and also some of the mental framework you can bring to coaching in order to be a better coach. Again, that's episode number 190. And then, uh, of course, episode 237 would be a fabulous listen. It was last year's most downloaded show. It was with Michael Bungay-Stanier as well. These coaching questions get results. We walk through a number of the coaching questions from The Coaching Habit. Episode 237 is a great listen uh, if today's conversation in particular was valuable to you. You can get access to all those past episodes just by going to coachingforleaders.com slash the episode number. That'll always take you right there. And of course, all those past related episodes will be in this week's weekly leadership guide on Wednesday. So watch for that as well. And on the next episode, I am welcoming Brenda Bernstein to the show. Brenda is the author of How to Write a Killer LinkedIn Profile. So we'll be discussing how you can make your LinkedIn profile really stand out. A number of you sent in your profiles for us to review. We have received so many of them, and we're going to be going through and doing a deep dive on some of the profiles, telling you exactly how to utilize LinkedIn and some of the common mistakes that you can avoid. So don't miss that next week. If you've used LinkedIn at all or want to leverage it, it's going to be a powerful episode. Have a great week, and I look forward to seeing you next week to talk about LinkedIn. Take care.